punctual and better obeyers. These are all things for my children. How's the sound back there, Les? Can you hear me? Okay. Feels like it's in an uncomfortable spot. That's okay. All right, well, good morning. Happy New Year. I know you guys are excited to talk church history this morning on this New Year's Day. Um, But today we are wrapping up our last session on church history. Um, It's our sixth session, and we've been studying the church in the 19th century, so that's the 1800s. And we've spent some time talking about the Second Great Awakening in America We talked about the church and its impact on society. If you remember, we talked about the Sunday School Movement, the YMCA, um, uh, the abolition of slavery, several other things about how the church was impacting society in the 19th century. Uh, We talked about the modern missionary movement for two weeks. We talked about the movement itself, and I kind of did some biographical sketches way back two or three weeks ago when we were last here about David Livingston and about Hudson Taylor. Uh, Today, okay, you know, I always plan out, and I thought maybe we would get to another section as well, but we didn't get to it. But I was hoping to talk about um, the uh, trend of denominationalism in the 19th century, because that kind of comes to a head, but it kind of works in the 20th century too, so we'll get to that next time. I know you don't care yet about that. Uh, but today I want to talk about some theological trends that occurred in the 19th century, and then I wanted to highlight a couple uh, famous preachers um, Uh, that uh, were around in the 19th century. Um, The theological trends we're going to talk about today, it it primarily is the rise of liberalism in theology. So we're going to talk about that. That's maybe a little weighty. It's very philosophical. I'm not a philosopher. So we're just going to skim the surface of these philosophies and and how they impacted theology. Um, After that, though, we're going to see kind of several... Uh, at least one primary group that responded to these liberals, and that was the Princeton Seminary in, um, in New Jersey. And um, then we're going to highlight a couple preachers. So uh, I, I, I gave you a lot of blanks today because I figured you were all ready and eager for the first of the year, and I thought that was fun. So here we go. Uh, if you could turn in your Bibles. If you didn't go to the first service, Dan, Pastor Dan actually highlighted in his message today um, about John Patton, he was a missionary in the 19th century during the modern missionary movement. So it's pretty cool that kind of coincided with what we talked about. And at the end, he concludes talking a little bit about Charles Spurgeon, who we're going to get to today as well. So um, if you could, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 18. So today we're going to see the rise of liberalism in the church, in theology, and the use of human reason and its um, uh, the attempts of making it superior to the Word of God. So let's read about God, or how Paul addresses um, the wisdom and power of God and the philosophies of man. All right, read with me. We're going to read uh, verse 18 through the end of the chapter. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to... To us who are being saved, it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? 
For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But those, to, to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. So that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we come before you, and our boast is in you, Lord. It's not Our boast is not in uh, our wisdom, Lord, or the things that we've done, Lord, but our boast is in you because you've reached down from heaven and called us and set us apart for your glory, Lord. You have saved us. Lord, we um, are humbled by that truth, Lord, and it causes us to worship you. Lord, so I hope this morning that we would worship you, Lord, and as we come to your the study of your church, Lord, as we see your hand at work in the lives of men to add many to the number of your church, Lord, I pray that we would worship you. Lord, as we even look at the, um, the liberal theologians of the 19th century, Lord, I pray that our hearts would be drawn to your word and to your scriptures, Lord, for a better understanding of who you are, Lord, so we might be better worshipers of you, Lord, and true worship you, worshipers of you as well. And Lord, I pray that you would just, uh, we commit this time to you and pray that you would honor it. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Okay, hope you all got a handout. James has done a very good job um, getting those out. Thank you very much, James. Okay, so, all right, we're going to hit a couple philosophers slash theologians. These people would all claim to be theologians, but um, they're not the theologians I would choose to study if I was a theology major. Uh, so the, f- the first part of our section here I've entitled, it's European Challenges to Orthodoxy. It's the rise of liberalism. Um, when I say European, it's primarily the European continent. So it's like Germany um, and places like that, not in England or in America. During the 19th century, the Enlightenment and its emphasis on reason influenced many theologians. This was the beginning of liberal theology that has caused many denominations to turn away from the authority of the Bible and the truth of the gospel. The 19th century saw the introduction of several liberal, man-centered philosophies um, like Karl Marx, Sigmund Freud, and Charles Darwin, but for the most part, they had an impact in the 20th century. However, the same intellectual fervor that inspired them was also the inspiration of several leading theologians, most of which had a negative impact on Christendom. Let's take some time to discuss several of these who were impacting the uh, cold faith of the European continent. These men wanted to combine Christianity with, the en- with Enlightenment elements to create a faith that was both consistent, or that was consistent with their intellectualism of the day. So the first guy we're going to talk about I was very creative here, so I didn't give you these names, so you had to learn how to spell them. So I gave you other uh, blanks here. Uh, so the first one is a man by the name of Friedrich Schleiermacher. So that's why I spelled it out for you. He lived from 1768 to 1834. He is known as the father of modern theology. 
also read that he was the father of liberalism. He was German-born, um, so and his parents most likely were Lutheran, but he was raised in school by the Moravians. So he had a pietistic evangelical youth, so we would have thought he would turned out to be pretty good. However, in college, he became a student of the Enlightenment, and he embraced a rational, critical view of the Scriptures. He wrote an influential book called On Religion, Speeches to Its Culture's Despisers in 1799. But in this book, what he wanted to do, he wanted the, the faith to be real again for people. He wanted the faith that had already drifted away because of the Enlightenment to be uh, realized again in Europe. Um, he wanted it to be relevant in the cultured, rational people of Europe, for most of them had given up on it. He said this, and I gave this quote to you, and I don't know why the or is over there, something on my indenting. But he said, Christianity is not ideas, not creeds, not propositions, and not a book like the Bible. It is in knowledge or ethics, or it is not in knowledge or ethics. It is not simply in being good. Christianity, or religion, is located in religious consciousness or in the feelings, not in the head or in outward conduct. The heart and core of Christianity is what one feels deep within his or her own being. I heard some groans. So, uh, so it's, it's a subjective Christianity, right? That's, that's what his emphasis is, is on the subjective, not the objective of who Christ is. Um, his view of Christianity was one that emphasized the subjective inner feeling of the believer over the historic doctrinal revelation of Christ found in the scriptures. Um, so this is his, he's like, if we're really going to, we need to evolve here further, not that he believed in evolution, but we need to evolve further as uh, students, and we need to accept these rational tendencies in order to make Christianity more palatable to uh, an unbelieving world. Um, I noted that it's easy to see how his philosophy impacted Christianity for years to come. You see a little of Finney and the American revival movement and his beliefs as they stirred the emotions to have people make decisions for Christ. You can even see it in the modern churches as well, which in so many cases appeal to the emotions of the believers primarily. Um, since the core of Christianity was people's feelings, and those could not be measured scientifically, Schleiermarker believed that he could interpret his doctrines even if they contradicted with the science of the day. So many of these enlightened people were all about removing the miraculous in the Bible and the scriptures. Thomas Jefferson in America is one. He took, I don't know if you all know this, but Thomas Jefferson took the entire Bible and he stripped it completely of all of its miraculous notes, things that are unrational, unreasonable that could have happened. And he was an enlightened thinker, obviously. And uh, so there was this concern that you couldn't have the faith of the Bible, with all of its things about statements about miracles and things that happened that were supernatural, and be a modern thinker. So Schleiermacher decided that if you just base it on the feelings, and we can't really measure the feelings scientifically, that kind of it kind of corrects the issues of the day. I don't know. We'll see. Uh, the next guy, I barely talked about this because he's really not a theologian, and my goodness, I don't know. My wife kept looking at me. And I was putting my head on my my hand on my head yesterday, I was just like, I can't, I can't, can't grasp this. And this is G.W.F. Hegel, and he introduced dialectic reasoning. So uh, if you have questions about it, Damon will be glad to talk to you about it, because he, he has a master's degree in enlightenment uh, studies. 
Um, that is, number two is GWF Hegel, using the dialectic reasoning of Hegel. GWF Hegel, H-E-G-E-L. I don't fill any of the other blanks yet. Just in general, Hegel lived from 1770 to 1831, and he was a philosopher who introduced this kind of thesis, antithesis, synthesis method to develop true reason. So you have a thought, right? And then you like think of thoughts that are contrary to that thought, and then you have other thoughts that might support your original thought. So you understand where I got confused on my thinking? <laughs> anyway, that's all this minutia about how to uh, come up with true truth and reason. Um, but this was his method to develop true reason. So in this method, you have a dynamic reason. It's always changing because you're taking this thesis and you're looking at it with this antithesis and the synthesis and you're always formulating and it's dynamic. It's always moving. But it gave future liberal theologians a, met a method to questioning the Bible's authority. So they would take this method into the Bible and bring their own ideas and things like that into it. Um, the, next, the, the next person I want to talk about is a man by the name of F.C. Bauer who used a historical critical method to analyze the scriptures. Um, he applied Hegel's thesis, antithesis, and synthesis method. He led a group of people that rejected the veracity of the Bible and also wanted to discover the authorship of each book of the Bible and prove that what the Bible says, who is the author, that it really was them. Um, he, his philosophies allowed for the textual corruption of the Bible at that time and even into our day. Um, so Bauer is kind of interested in the history and the context of how the, the Bible was written and if it truly is written according to what the Bible says, not taking the word of God for what it says it is. Um, his emphasis on history led to the quest for the historical Jesus towards the end of the 19th century. Uh, certain people had found it necessary to find out information about Jesus separate from what the church and the Bible had taught. Um, these historians, of course, brought their own prejudices into account into their search. Um, one um, man who was not an evangelical but I'm a, named Albert Schweitzer in the 20th century said uh, that the quest for the historical Jesus looked for a man of the 19th century and instead of finding Jesus, found a man in his own image. So they're, you're bringing these ideas of who Jesus is based on your reason that was introduced in the 19th century, and they um, didn't find even the historical Jesus. They found the modern-day 19th century Jesus. Um, next, um, I've got two more uh, philosophers I want to talk about. One was a kind of a reaction to Hegel and to Schleiermacher, and his name is Soren Kierkegaard. Sorry. Made you spell that one. <laughs> he lived from 1813 to 1855 in Denmark. He's nicknamed the Melancholy Dane. Um, he was part of the Lutheran State Church in Denmark. And he criticized the society in Denmark, which was, you know, it's the Lutheran State Church. So everybody in Denmark is Lutheran. So you're, you're not, it's not a question if you're a Christian or not, you're a Lutheran. So he wrote in 1855, the religious situation in our country is that Christianity does not exist. So he set out to reintroduce Denmark to Christianity. Um, regar regarding the flood of Enlightenment thought that was going on in continental Europe, he said, it is all delusion. It is optimistic, humanistic rationalism and Enlightenment thought. It is not, it is not only not Christianity, 
but it is delusion because it fails to address the real issues of fear, suffering, and death. So he's opposing these Enlightenment views, but he has some interesting uh, uh, views himself. Um, he opposed the delusions of the Enlightenment views of God. He felt that the Enlightenment view of God, the liberals, had made God too eminent, comfortable, and non-threatening. He believed God was separate, or is separate, transcendent, and sovereign. He's thought by many to be the first existentialist. Go ahead. Not an atheistic existentialist, however. Uh, he believed that true faith, it's all about faith for him, had to do with a person's very existence. So exist, this is so philosophical. So Josh, I'm sure you're into this because you were in college recently, and Andy, you too, but... Uh, Existence, in, contra in, in contradiction to what Hegel would say, precedes essence. Um, and too often, someone's existence or their faith is wrapped up only in morality or in doctrine. Okay, so he believed in there is a radical separation between man and God, and that we can't reach God, only he can reach us, and he reaches us, reaches us in Christ only. He calls it the impossible possibility of Christ. Um, so he's stressing that you have to have faith in this transcendent, um, separate, sovereign being in God. So it's all about this leap of faith, and in the leap of faith, we respond to God. Um, faith is never easy, he would say, um, and he opposed cheap Christianity. So to some degree, liking what we hear from Kierkegaard, uh, Francis Schaeffer, however, was a critic of Kierkegaard, because he felt that his philosophies were irrational and that the faith he proposed was not necessarily a faith in Christ, but a faith in the idea of faith. I'm getting y'all's brains running here on January 1st. Uh, if I believe enough, then it will be true, is kind of a philosophy you can take from Kierkegaard. So you can see that in some of our modern um, uh, churches. Um, Others believe it is a short step from Kierkegaardian existentialism, where God is fundamental, to atheistic existentialism that does not does it without God altogether. Um, but despite the, those critiques about Kierkegaard, there is a lot of spiritual vibrancy in his view. So he's trying to correct um, some of the enlightened uh, thinkers. The next guy, let's see, I have this, good, is Albert, yeah, mm-hmm. I promise he's not missing a vowel. <laughs> Rietzel, how about that? We'll go with that. Um, he espoused a view of true Christianity was found in ethics. So we have feelings, we have faith, we have the historical critical method, and now we have true Christianity is found in ethics. Um, so Christianity is not a doctrine or feelings, but rather ethics. It is how one lives. It is what one does, particularly in society. Um, his um, philosophy was the driving force behind the social gospel in the late 19th century and 20th century, um, which was the idea that salvation was not primarily personal and individualistic, but rather for the redeeming of society. I'm giving you a lot of information right here. Terry Blanks are individualistic and personal. But rather, it was for the redeeming of society through ethics, morality, and good works. So this, 
the social gospel had many people. Denominations were wrapped up in the social gospel, and it's... Um, its slogan was the fatherhood of God and the brethren of men. The social gospel at the turn of the century in America um, and its liberal preaching was heard from a lot of the pulpits in America. It obviously was not the true gospel, but it did do a lot to make changes in society, but not the changed hearts that America really needed. All right, so these are the these are the European uh, uh, theologians that are of... of uh, interest this time. Okay, so next, let's move back. Let's go across the Atlantic to America again. So here we are in America. In 1700s, mid-1700s, Jonathan Edwards is the preeminent thinker in America, um, and the First Great Awakening occurs at his due, partly because of his work and uh, George Whitfield's preaching by the power of the Holy Spirit. Um, so there's this, this breadth of um, theological uh, Calvinism that's very precise and orderly and historical um, that was going on in the mid-1700s. Uh, However, in the early 1800s, there's a dramatic shift to uh, a more Arminian, less Calvinistic view of um, theology. Um, the first, we can see this in the two main universities of the time, Yale and Harvard. Um, so after the death of Jonathan Edwards, Puritan New England, lost its strong sense of biblical-minded theology. Two systems of theology, the new divinity, which was a theological system that had shifted from Calvinistic Edwards to a more Arminian-led Arminian -led, um, theology by the likes of men like Joseph Bellamy, Samuel Hopkins, and Timothy Dwight. You Remember, we talked about Timothy Dwight during the Second Great Awakening. He was the one that was praying for the revival to occur in the Northeast. Um, the second theology is the New Haven theology. New Haven is where Yale is. And it was the New Haven theology was led by a man by the name of Nathaniel Taylor. And he went from nearly Arminian theology to a more Pelagian view of man-centeredness. And his theological studies focused on moralism. So this is a change in New England. So it also in 1805, Harvard, Yale and Harvard, both founded as Christian schools. Understand that. Every one of the Ivy League schools was founded as a Christian institution, I think. I'm pretty confident. Brown, Dartmouth, yeah, I'm pretty sure about that. But all by different denominations. So, um, and within hundred and 20, 130 years of their founding, they are no longer um, Christian. 1805, uh, Harvard um, appoints a Unitarian, so that's someone that rejects the doctrine of the Trinity, was appointed the chair of theology at Harvard. And soon, probably immediately, I should change that, uh, it became a secular institution. In 1809, this is not in your notes, so don't put this one, in, don't cheat and go to number six. Uh, in 1809, a school by the name of Andover Seminary was founded in response to the secularization of Harvard. Andover Seminary is the school that sent out Adoniram Judson and his classmates uh, to India. Um, so that was a, 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 a good institution that was founded. Um, a couple other things that are not in your notes that w happened at this time. Uh, 
the father of American church history was in, uh, in a place in Pennsylvania, I think called Mercersburg. His name was Philip Schaff, and he wrote a monumental, voluminous work on church history called The History of the Christian Church. I'm interested in that. <laughs> but he's kind of the father of American church history. I mean, he's got, it's this big, you know, those volumes of church history. I don't have those. Um, but the, the main thing we want to talk about in response to the liberal theology of the day and this change in New England is the rise of Princeton Seminary in, um, in New England, which is the home for Orthodox Protestantism in America. So founded in 1812, Princeton Seminary was the shining light for Orthodox Protestantism in America. Princeton University already existed, but the seminary comes along in 1812. Originally, Princeton was called the College of New Jersey, um, and um, I think that's where Edwards was called to be the president right before he died. Um, it was initially led by three men. Um, its motto was, first I'll get to the men in a second, its motto was piety of heart and, and solid learning. And the first man that came to leadership there was a man by the name of Archibald Alexander, who was a Reformed Presbyterian pastor, preacher, who was greatly involved in the Second Great Awakening. Um, he led revivals, and he, um, was, he, he encouraged his church to be a part of the Second Great Awakening, but he feared some of the things that Finney was doing in the uh, Second Great Awakening with some of the emotional aspects of it. Um, so he's the first person there. A second man was, joined him later uh, by the name of Samuel Miller. And the third uh, faculty member who came aboard in 1812 was a man by the name of Charles Hodge, who was a recent graduate of Princeton Seminary. My clock is not up there, so I have to go look at it. All right, so there's Princeton Seminary is um, it's very important as far as reviving the doctrine of uh, the Reformed doctrine the, the faith, of the faith at that time. There's five characteristics about, about Princeton, though, that are not obvious. Some of them are. Number one, it is a place for the study of Reformed theology. This is Princeton in the 19th century, not Princeton today. <laughs> um, its main textbook, as Hodge progressed as a scholar, was his systematic theology. Okay, so in contrast to the, um, in contrast to the, uh, I guess the liberals of the day, Hodge famously said that a new idea never originated at Princeton. So what they were just doing is building upon systems of doctrine that had already been established and accepted throughout the church. They weren't trying to come up with some new, you know, feelings-based um, theology. So never a new idea originated at Princeton. Probably. Probably exaggerated to some degree on that. But um, number two, the emphasis was on the uh, the inspiration and inerrancy of Scripture was emphasized. They believed that inerrancy was a biblical view of the Bible, and that it was a belief that was held throughout the ages. Liberal liberals at the time believed that the Princetonian theologians had actually invented that doctrine, so they would argue that they created the idea of inerrancy of Scripture. Um, however, they argued that throughout church history, um, that's what the script and that's what the Bible says about itself. Number three, there was a great piety in Christian life there. 
So sometimes when there's a great study of theology and people are emphasizing the study of theology, maybe it can be cold and not giving much life, but the school was a place where students were striving to walk with God, not just understand theology, but it was of the heart as well. Um, they emphasized evangelism and missions. Obviously a critique of Calvinists is that, that they don't evangelize and they don't do missions work, but as you'll hear from Dan, that there's many missionaries that are Calvinists. Um, Archibald Alexander, as I noted, was quite the revivalist. Um, his son, um, who was on staff as well later on at um, Princeton, J.W. Alexander, was a gifted preacher and revivalist. He also was a believer in the Reformed view of salvation. They, for missions, they, there was a, a society formed by the Princeton students called the Princeton Student Society of Inquiry on Missions. And it was one of the most active and important centers of missionary study and missionary zeal in America. And before, as we talked about, remember, in the missionary work, societies were established to bring together churches to sponsor missionaries. But before the societies really took root in America, it was student societies like the one at Princeton that, had, um, that gave life to the modern missionary movement in America. So Princeton was like the other universities in that sense. So there was an emphasis on evangelism and missions. Um, and then the fifth one would be um, interacted with culture, that they promoted a Christian worldview, that Christ was Lord of your life over all things, and that um, it should, your faith should impact everything that you do. All right, number eight, Charles Hodge. It's the first time somebody's been a blank twice ever in my notes. Uh, he led Princeton for 56 years. Um, and his ministry emphasized this, this. I think these points portray what Princeton's goals were in opposition to the liberalism of the day. One, it was the glory of God as the purpose of life, as opposed to human happiness. Just go with the glory of God as purpose of life. But, uh, B, the power of the Holy Spirit in salvation against human views of self-determination. So it's the power of the Holy Spirit in salvation. and then the scriptures as the proper fount of theology. In contrast to the human religious experience of Finney or the dictates of formal reason as presented by liberalism. So those through 56 years of ministry, I just summed up his life in three things. So, uh, but those are the emphases, emphases that he he uh, had in his life of ministry. Um, after Hodge, uh, two men came and led uh, Princeton and during Hodge's uh, career as well. One was B.B. Warfield, and his son was A.A. A. Hodge. So we have A.A. A. and B.B. Uh, they carried the mantle of Princeton Seminary and were involved in the writing of the fundamentals in the 20th century. And they were mostly concerned with promoting the inerrancy and inspiration of the scriptures. We will talk about them in the 20th century for sure. 
So that's those. That's the response to theology is the uh, growth of the or the um, the need for the Princeton Seminary uh, to um, train people properly in um, theology. All right. So so this is about theology, but then I, I needed to talk about preaching and I need to get a little bit more biographical because that's what I love to do. Uh, so the last point I want to make is I want to talk about two uh, outstanding pastors slash preachers of the 19th century. I was going to have three, but I didn't have time for the third. So the first is a man by the name of Charles Simeon who served as the pastor of the Holy Trinity Church in Cambridge. Um. Simeon lived from 1759 to 1836. In 1782, he became the pastor at the Holy Trinity Church in Cambridge as a young man, recent recent graduate of Cambridge. He was not well received by his parishioners who wanted actually the, at the time, the associate pastor uh, or minister to become the the senior pastor. And he, uh, Simeon was an evangelical. The person that the parishioners wanted was not so they were offended by his message. Uh, the parishioners locked their pews, did not attend his services, um, which required, since the pews were locked, so people actually, did you know this, they rented their pews, and they would pay money to the church for their pew, and they'd have a lock, and they'd lock it up, so nobody got to sit in their pew, so they just didn't show up for any messages that Simeon preached. Um, so the people that did come um, would have to stand in the aisles. So they would stand in the aisles, um, after a few weeks of that, Simeon was like, well, we can't have this. So he brought in some benches for the people to sit on. Well, the church ordinance took the benches and threw them out of the church, not allowing them to be there. So he had much opposition there. Um, this happened for 12 years. The people locked their pews and didn't come and sit, and they were in um, opposition to him. Yet he faithfully preached, and he stayed. Um, one of the main things, for some reason, the congregation at the time had the ability to select who would give the Sunday afternoon lecture. And they never chose him for 12 years. For five years, they chose the guy that they wanted to be the pastor. And for seven years, they brought in just a couple other people to give the Sunday lecture. And he didn't do that. So um, he never, he didn't have the opportunity to even speak to the people that were um, um, kicking him out, wanted to kick him out. Um, however, he was influential. This church is in Cambridge, which is the leading uh, university at the time, one of the leading universities at the time in England. So he decides his influence isn't with the parishioners, but with the students at Cambridge. So he begins um, to have what he calls conversation parties at his home, which allows for the students to come in at dinner or whatever, and they would talk about theology, about the Bible, about the scriptures. And um, he also uh, began having a service for them on Sunday nights at the church. He was very engaged in culture as well, and in missions. He was one of the founders of the Church Missionary Society that we talked about a couple years ago in 1799. He encouraged missions as a vocation to the students at Cambridge. And the, uh, he was the one responsible, or at the spirits uh, leading in the life of Henry Martin, who went to the mission field in the 1800s. And this is an interesting fact. In 1809, he helped to found the London Society for Promoting Christianity Amongst the Jews. So he had a great concern that the gospel be preached to the Jewish people as well. He was involved in appointing chaplains for the East India Company. He was very well respected. He's involved in this, this part of the uh, 
of England that William, William Wilberforce is a part of. He was a pastor at this church, though. Eventually, people came around to him you know, after about 12 years. He was the pastor there for 54 years. He was an evangelical. He's not, so he's not, he's, he's a uh, nonconformist Anglican. Um, he did not want to be labeled either a Calvinist or an Arminian, but he wanted to be labeled as um, a follower of Christ. Um, there's much about faithfulness and perseverance that we can learn from the life of Charles Simeon, and um, I would recommend him to you. Um, but very influential pastor during this time. All right, the next one is pretty easy to do. Uh, it is nicknamed the Prince of Preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Was perhaps one of the greatest preachers in the history of the church. Spurgeon lived from 1834 to 1892. Besides Whitfield, he's probably the greatest preacher ever from England. Maybe right there alongside with Whitfield. He grew up in a nonconformist home, but the so he was Anglican. But at the age of fifteen, he became a Baptist and was baptized. Um, and before that, he'd been a believer in infant baptism. And immediately, or within years of being baptized, he began to preach. Um, without a whole lot of formal education, he became a preacher. And the pews filled up to hear him. He was gifted with a nearly photographic memory. Like he would read something and be able to spout it back to you amazingly. It's one of these, so Dan was saying at the close of his sermon today, he's like, it's amazing what God can do with ordinary people, you know, to, to uh, further his kingdom. But sometimes God uses extraordinarily talented, God-gifted people like Spurgeon and like Whitfield to proclaim his truths. And Spurgeon had an amazing intellect an amazing memory, and an amazing ability to communicate what he's read in his preaching. Um, uh, let's see, he moved to London to become a preacher at a, at a church called the New Park Street Chapel. So he stays there, and that's his, that's his uh, church for, for his life. His congregation moved in 1861 to a place called the Metropolitan Tabernacle, which seated 5,600 people. So it's a concert hall, really. I mean, it's, he moved into the American Airlines Center or something. Um, he was not a theologian, though. He's a preacher. He didn't have formal training as a theologian, uh, but he was gifted with amazing abilities of speaking, remembering, and eloquence, much like Whitfield was. Very dramatic in his preaching as well, which offended a lot of people at the time. He read six books at a time. So take that for your New Year's resolution. <laughs> I just want to read one. No, uh, His preaching was... The emphasis of his preaching was the gospel. He would say he was a Calvinist, but he didn't hold to systems too tightly, just the word of God. He said, I, he said, I am never ashamed to avow myself a Calvinist. He's a Baptist Calvinist. So. I do not hesitate to take the name of Baptist, but if I am asked, what is my creed? I reply, it is Jesus Christ. Um, some 10 million people heard him preach. He's the most widely read uh, preacher in history except for those preachers that are in the Bible. His collected sermons are wrapped up in 63 volumes. It's the largest published work accredited to one author in the world. All those, so that's all his, his collected sermons are 63 volumes. I think that's the size I read somewhere, and I don't remember what edition this was, of one of the Encyclopedia Britannica's it's equivalent to that, his, his sermons. Um, 
let's see, he, towards the end of his life, he, he became involved in what we call the downgrade controversy. As he saw that the English Baptist Union, Union was watering down the scriptures and submitting to liberal theology of the day, he would say that this downgrade or slippery, slippery slope was one that should, they should not want to go down. Unfortunately, the split was more about personality conflicts instead of solving the issue of the downgrade. But this shows, his emphasis on that shows his profound love and belief in the scriptures and the orthodox faith. And the Metropolitan Tabernacle actually separated from the Baptist Union because of the controversy. When Spurgeon died in 1892, 60,000 people came to visit his body at the church as it lay in a state. And another 100,000 lined the two-mile funeral route on the roadways. Uh, without a doubt, he was the greatest preacher of his lifetime and probably one of the greatest of all time by God's grace. I mean, he ministered to uh, the prime minister of the time, uh, Gladstone. Um, very, um, very influential and um, very well-respected. And it's amazing. I mean, I think Spurgeon's probably still very recognized even outside of the, uh, the Christian uh, world for his popularity. Um, so he is the second preacher I wanted to talk about. Um, so I hope that kind of gave you a flavor for the theology that was going on and the changes in theology that have an impact for us even today. And then the, uh, a couple of the, the pastors. I want to talk about J.C. Ryle as well. Maybe we can talk about him some in the, when we get to the 20th century. So, I think I did good. All right, thank you guys. Thank you, Emily. Uh, uh, you guys have a happy new year. I've enjoyed doing this, and I look, back, look forward to doing it again. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we, we praise you for today. Lord, we praise you for um, the opportunity for us to be here together as believers as we uh, worship you, Lord. And Lord, I pray that you would just... Help us, Lord, have a greater understanding of who you are and how you have been faithful through the ages, Lord, to build your church. Lord, we praise you for that, and we worship you because of it. Lord, we ask that you would just bless this day, Lord, as we uh, go forward. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.